0: section 31 of a history of our own times volume 4 by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter 60 the black sea clause the alabama arbitration part 1 meanwhile the portentous changes which were taking place on the continent of europe had as was natural their effect on england and the english government the emperor napoleon having taken to himself a liberal minister m emile olivier one of the famous five who for years had represented opposition in the french legislative chamber had sought to get a renewed charter for himself and his dynasty by means of a plebiscite representing the question at issue as one of revolution or social order the emperor obtained a very large majority of eyes in favour of his policy in his house seven and a quarter million eyes against one and a half million no's but the minority was considerable and one peculiarity made it specially ominous there were more than fifty-two thousand no's among the votes of the army and navy the mexican expedition and its ghastly failure had much injured the prestige of the emperor with the two services the truth could not be concealed that he had been peremptorily ordered out of Mexico by the United States government, and that he obeyed the command, leaving Maximilian to his fate. Louis Napoleon saw that he must do something to recover his military popularity. The overthrow of Austria by Prussia had roused a strong feeling of jealousy in France. Monsieur Thiers, in particular, had endeavoured to keep up an angry mood against the imperial government. He constantly reproached the emperor for not interposing in some way to protect Austria and restrict the ambition of Prussia. Louis Napoleon therefore found himself driven to try the gamester's last and desperate throw. He seized the first excuse for forcing a war on Prussia. It is probable that war would have come in any case. Monsieur Prévost Paradol had compared France and Prussia to two express trains Starting from opposite points along the same line of rails, the collision must come. It was merely a question of time. The comparison was happy. Prussia knew very well that her success over Austria had aroused the jealousy and the fears of France. France began to revive the old talk of the frontier on the Rhine. Bismarck had probably made up his mind that the quarrel would have to be fought out one day. Still, It was a fatal mistake of the Emperor Napoleon to force the quarrel on such a pretext as the fact that the Spanish people had invited a distant relation of the King of Prussia to become sovereign of Spain. Louis Napoleon managed to put himself completely in the wrong. The King of Prussia at once induced his relative to withdraw from the candidature, in order not to disturb the susceptibilities of France, and then, the french government pressed for a general pledge that the king of prussia would never on any future occasion allow of any similar candidature when it came to this there was an end of negotiation it was clear then that the emperor was resolved to have a quarrel count bismarck must have smiled a grim smile his enemy had delivered himself into bismarck's hands The Emperor had been for some time in failing health. He had not been paying much attention to the details of his administration. False security and self-conceit had operated among his generals and his war department to the utter detriment of the army. Nothing was ready. The whole system was falling to pieces. Long after France had declared war, the army that was to go to Berlin was only dragging heavily toward the frontier the experience of what had happened to austria might have told anyone that the moment prussia saw her opportunity she would move with the direct swiftness of an eagle's flight but the french army stuck as if it was in mud what every one expected came to pass the prussians came down on the french like the rush of a torrent the fortunes of the war were virtually decided in a day then the french lost battle after battle the emperor dared not return to Paris. The defence, for the Prussians had long since become the invaders, was carried on with regard to the emperor's political fortunes rather than to the military necessities of the hour. There was nothing but French defeats until there came at last the crowning disaster of Sedan. The emperor surrendered his sword and was a captive in the hands of his enemies. The second empire was gone in a moment paris proclaimed the republic and the empress Eugenie fled to england the second empire was all in the dust the conqueror at versailles was hailed as german emperor we need not follow the fortunes of the war france made many a brave and brilliant attempt to rally but it was too late official neglect and mismanagement had done their work no courage no patriotism could now retrieve the fortunes of the field marshal the ill-omened soldier of the mexican campaign surrendered at mess with a vast army paris was invested was besieged had to give up or famine would have done the work for her the conquering enemy had to be spoken with at the gate france had nothing for it but to accept the terms imposed on her she lost two provinces and had to pay an enormous fine and the war was over the sympathies of the english people generally were at first almost altogether with prussia the policy of the emperor napoleon had seemed so gross and outrageous that the public voice here applauded the resistance of germany to his attempted dictation but when the empire fell the feeling suddenly changed it was the common idea that the prussians ought to have been content with sidon and the complete destruction of the bonapartist empire and have made generous terms with the Republic. Great popular meetings were held in Trafalgar Square, London, and in various provincial cities, to express sympathy with the hardly entreated French. The sympathy of the Irish populations had been with France all through. The old bonds of comradeship dating from the Irish Brigade, and from long before it, had still their hold upon the emotional and impassioned Irish nature many persons everywhere thought the government ought to do something to assist the french republic some were of opinion that the glory of england would suffer if she did not get into a fight with some power or other it came out in the course of the eager diplomatic discussions which were going on that there had been some secret talk at different times of a private engagement between france and prussia which would have allowed france on certain conditions to annex belgium this astounding revelation excited alarm and anger in england the government met this possible danger by at once pressing upon france and prussia a new treaty by which these powers bound themselves jointly with england to maintain the independence of belgium and to take up arms against any state invading it the government might fairly claim to have thus provided satisfactorily against any menace to the integrity and independence of belgium and they prepared against the more general dangers of the hour by asking for a large vote to enable them to strengthen the military defenses of the country. But they were seriously embarrassed by the manner in which Russia suddenly proposed to deal with the Treaty of Paris. One article of that treaty declared that the Black Sea is neutralized, its waters and its ports thrown open to the mercantile marine of every nation, are formally and in perpetuity Interdicted to the flag of war, either of the powers possessing its coasts or of any other power, and the Sultan of Turkey and the Emperor of Russia engaged to establish or maintain no military or maritime arsenals on the shores of that sea. Russia now took advantage of the war between France and Prussia to say that she would not submit to be bound by that article of the treaty any longer. The Russian statesman pleaded, as a justification of this blunt and sudden proceeding, that the Treaty of Paris had been ignored by other powers, and in a variety of ways, since the time of its signature, and that Russia could not be expected to endure for ever an article which bore heavily, directly, and specially upon her. The manner of making the announcement was startling, ominous, and offensive but there really was not much that any english statesman could do to interfere with russia's declared intentions two of the great powers concerned in the treaty of paris were occupied too gravely with concerns of their own to have much interest in the neutralization of the black sea it was not likely that france or prussia would stop just then from the death grapple in which they were engaged to join in coercing russia to keep to the disputed article in the treaty austria of course would not under any circumstances undertake to interfere it would have been a piece of preposterous quixotry on the part of england to take on herself alone the responsibility of maintaining the sanctity of the treaty besides it had long been clear to every practical politician that sooner or later by one process or another Russia would shake herself free from the obligation imposed on her by the clause which she now challenged. Literally, it affected all the great powers alike, but, in fact, it only concerned Russia, and it was devised as a means of restraining her alone. The Black Sea is virtually a Russian lake. At least it may be thus described if we think of military and political questions only for turkey's use of the black sea could hardly be a vital moment to europe and turkey and russia divide between them the euxine shores however wise and just therefore the desire of the western powers to have the war flag of russia kept out of the waters of the black sea it must have been clear to every statesman even at the time when the treaty was made that should russia ever be in a position to demand a release from the conditions which her defeat in the crimea imposed upon her she would take advantage of the opportunity it must have been expected that she would insist upon the abrogation of the clause in the treaty of paris which shut her navy out of the waters that washed her own southern shores but the manner of demanding the abrogation of the clause surprised and offended even more than the demand itself there was something calm in the coarse bluntness of the obvious admission that russia now insisted on new conditions because she found that there was no possibility of any western alliance to interfere with her will if england had gone to war with russia she would have gone to war for the maintenance of an article in the treaty of paris which no one believed could be long maintained in any case and for which most of the european powers cared nothing either way Lord Granville confined himself to remonstrating against the extraordinary assumption that any power which signed a treaty could legitimately and of its own motion repudiate any part of the treaty at any moment when it thought fit. If Russia cared about argument, it must be admitted that Lord Granville's argument was beyond reply lord granville merely affirmed that when several parties have entered into a joint engagement it cannot be open to any one of them to withdraw from it whenever he pleases without consulting the others but of course russia cared nothing about argument or fairness in the matter she saw that she had an unprecedented chance a chance perhaps never to occur again for getting out of her engagement with impunity and she seized upon it and held to it we do not see how even a Russian outside the official world could undertake to justify the action of the Russian government. On the other hand, we fear that the Russian emperor might find a good deal in the events then passing in Europe to plead in excuse of his policy. Public law did not seem for the time to be held in very high regard. The transactions between Prussia and France with regard to belgium were disgraceful to the statesmen who took part in them they were cynically avowed by count bismarck when he found it suited his convenience to betray his late accomplices a feeble attempt was made on the part of the accomplices to disavow them to deny them or escape in some way from the shame of having set them going each party fell back upon the policy of the husband and wife meeting by chance at the masked ball each of whom makes overtures to the unrecognised other, and each of whom on a mutual recognition insists that the overtures were only made with the object of trying the other's virtue. Thus Europe was amused for a few days, and ought no doubt to have been scandalised by the controversy between France and Prussia as to which was the tempter, which was the tempted, and what was the real motive of the temptation. Then again, the King of Italy took advantage of the withdrawal of the French army of occupation from Rome to announce that in the interest of order and to deliver Rome and the Pope from the tyranny of the Pope's foreign guards, he felt compelled to march the Italian troops into the city, taking forcible possession of it, and make it the capital of his dominions. We do not propose to discuss or even to touch upon the religious question then at issue between the Vatican and the King of Italy. We are willing to look at all that took place from the point of view of those who desired that Italy should become one united kingdom and should have Rome for her capital. Even from this point of view, it seems absolutely impossible to justify the course taken by the King of Italy. It is easy to understand how Italians and other men should say to themselves, Now that the thing has been done, we are glad it is done and is over but it would baffle the ingenuity of any casuist to find a justification for such a mode of solving a great political question unless on the bold assumption that the stronger has always a right to do anything he thinks proper with the weaker at all events it is not surprising that when the emperor of russia saw such strokes of policy approved of by the cabinets of great powers like england he should have said to himself that there was no reason why he alone of all other sovereigns on the european continent should not be at liberty to lay rude hands on opportunity there was apparently a general scramble going on and the emperor alexander may not have seen why there should be any law of morality or honour specially binding on him which was not binding on his neighbours such of course would not have been the view of a moralist but the emperor Alexander was perhaps of the way of thinking of that philosopher who has argued that it is immoral to be in advance of the morality of one's age. Perhaps Alexander thought that in acting as he did, he was only acting up to the morality of his contemporaries. End of section 31.